following sermon was recorded at Chiang Mai Christian Fellowship in Chiang Mai, Thailand. For more information, please view our website at www.ccfth.org. So today I want to dive into Exodus chapter 7. You'll read along, sorry, chapter 17. You'll read along with me. Water from the rock, starting at verse 1. At the Lord's command, the whole community of Israel left the wilderness of sin and moved back from place to place. Eventually they came, they camped at Rephidim, where there was no water for the people to drink. So once more, the people complained against Moses. Give us water to drink, they demanded. Quiet, Moses replied. Why are you complaining against me? And why are you testing the Lord? But tormented by thirst, they continued to argue with Moses. Why did you bring us out of Egypt? Why are you you trying to kill us, our children and our livestock with thirst? Then Moses cried out to the Lord, What should I do with these people? They are ready to stone me. The Lord said to Moses, Walk out in front of the people. Take your staff, the one you used when you struck the water of the Nile, and call some of the elders of Israel to join you. I will stand before you on the rock at Mount Sinai, strike the rock, and water will come gushing out. When the people will... Then the people will be able to drink. So Moses struck the rock as he was told, and water gushed out as the elders looked on. Moses named the place Massah, which means test, and Meribah, which means argue, arguing. Because the people of Israel argued with Moses and tested the Lord by saying, Is the Lord here with us or not? Just to set the scene a little bit, as we talked about the last couple of weeks, if you weren't here, the Israelites are now headed through the desert. And uh, this is the third of what we call the grumbling accounts. So the first one with the bitter water at Marah. Then after that, manna and quail from heaven complaining about hunger and God provides. And now, later on, they're dying of thirst, as they say. And so they complain to Moses. And Moses, after two accounts of these, the first two accounts, Moses was pretty good about just directing them to God. As soon as the issue came up, he would just say, okay, well, let's go talk to God. And he, he would relay their comment to God, and God would take care of it. And this was God's way of showing them that he was uh, in control, that he, he absolutely had uh, this all planned out. Well, in this particular account, you can, you can guess that maybe Moses was starting to get a little frustrated because he shows a little bit of frustration here. And he says, you know, God, what, what, they're going to stone me. What, what are you going to do? He, you can see that he's got this, this maybe fear inside of him, this fear of capital punishment. Now, stoning was a very common punishment, as, as we've said many times in the scripture. Um, and it was particularly for people that were um, deemed to be maybe hazardous to society or hazardous to a community. And so stoning was uh, essentially by saying, by him thinking that he was going to be stoned, he was, he was under the impression that this was a capital crime. And that there was a real chance of his, his life ending in this time. And so he goes to God and he complains to God himself. I want to pause there for a second and I want to move forward to 1 Corinthians 10, verses 1 through 5. And read a much later account of this. Chapter 10, starting with verse 1. I don't want you to forget, dear brothers and sisters, about your ancestors in the wilderness long ago. All of them were guided by a cloud that moved ahead of them, and all of them walked through the sea, walked through the sea on dry ground. In the cloud and in the sea, all of them were baptized as followers of Moses. All of them ate the simple, the same spiritual food, and all of them drank the same spiritual water. For they drank with the spiritual rock 
that traveled with them, and that rock was Christ. Yet God was not pleased with most of them, and their bodies were scattered in the wilderness. These things happened as a warning to us, going on in verse 6, so that we would not crave evil things as they did, or worship idols as some of them did. As the scriptures say, the people celebrated with feasting and drinking, and they judged, they indulged in pagan revelry. And we must not engage in sexual immorality as some of them did, causing 23,000 of them to die in one day. So in Exodus chapter 17, we have the story, we have what actually happened, and then we have a much later account that is told as essentially a, a true We'll call it a cautionary story, but it's actually a true story. I, I don't mean that in the phrase that this is a made-up story to make a point. But um, in Corinthians, it's, it's very clear that they're using this as a point. That we should not be like this. We've already learned this lesson. We've already been down this path. And so I think it's very, very relevant to see how that much later generation saw this. That they were still remembering these things. Now it makes sense that they were still remembering it because we see all throughout the Exodus that Moses is leaving signposts behind him. Remembrances. It's, it's becoming part of their culture and their tradition to remember these events, the things that are happening. And they give us a clear warning. <coughs> Later on in 1 Corinthians, it talks about how they crave evil things. They worship idols. They engage in pagan revelry, sexual immorality. They put Christ to the test. They grumbled and they complained. And all of these things are cast in the light of, we've learned this lesson, Israel. Why are we doing this again? This has already been written down in history. Why are we going down this path once again? Today, from Exodus chapter 17, I want to take out two main points. There's actually a third point, but Finn covered it last week. Um, it's been fairly well covered. That God is generous. That is a, a common theme. As each time they move on in the Exodus, you see God provide in amazing ways. Providing food far better than what they deserved. Providing water far more than what they needed. Taking bitter water and turning it sweet so that they would enjoy drinking it. God is generous. So I don't want to belabor that point. I want to spend my time today on two other points. God is gracious and God is intentional. Now I'm going to add a component to this. God is gracious when we test him. The Israelites going through the deserts are frustrated. And they want to put God to the test. In fact, they're expecting a miracle at this point in time. They're essentially saying to God, if you really love us, you're going to take care of this. Why would you bring us out here to die of thirst? You can just imagine your child saying this. Mom, why did you drag me out here to kill me? This is such a long walk. I'm going to die of thirst. I'm going to, I'm going to just melt away. You see this, this small child pleading with their parents. Well, God looks at this, and, and he sees it as a test, and he is gracious in that. They are whiny, and they are childish in this. Now, just to set this up, it might seem reasonable. We just look at this as one account, and we say, well, they were, they were going to die of thirst, right? They were probably really thirsty. Well, let's back a up a little bit here. What's the whole story? Up until this point, they had been, uh, they, they had been saved by God through the Exodus, 11 signs and wonders, into the wilderness... God turned, miraculously, bitter water into sweet water. He parted the Red Sea. He gave them manna from heaven that tasted like honey. And now they're afraid they're going to die of thirst. As if in God's giant plan, that is clearly being acted out step by step, somehow God forgot this one. 
He orchestrated these amazing 11 signs and wonders. He was able to part the Red Sea, but God just simply forgot about water. It seems ridiculous when you look at it as the whole story. And in that way, as we as parents interact with our children, when they come to us and they whine about these terribly dramatic things that are going to happen to them, we also see it from that same perspective, right? We're not going to let our children die of thirst. We're not going to let them die of hunger. We've been feeding them day after day after day for years. But today, I've taken my son out on a hike, and I'm going to let it start. It just doesn't make sense. It would have been way cheaper to do that a long time ago if that was one of my plans. God orchestrated an amazing act by rescuing the Israelites. And now they're coming back to him and they're afraid that he's simply just going to let them die of thirst. Moses, as I said earlier, clearly stressed out by this circumstance, thinks that his neck is maybe on the chopping block. That if God doesn't do something about this, then Moses is going to be the one that is punished. So God is gracious when we test him. It's amazing what we can ask of God. And he can freely give it sometimes. And sometimes he gives us far beyond our imagination. And the reality that we have to continue to remind ourselves of is that we do not deserve any of it. The Israelites did not deserve anything. We as the modern day church do not deserve anything. Every bit of blessing we take from life is a good gift from a God that loves us. It is something that He has done to love us. It is not something we have earned. We cannot be good enough Christians to earn God's blessing. He gives that freely. The Israelites could not be good enough to earn wine. In fact, they took the opposite route. Instead of trying to be good enough, they said, hey, let's be complaining enough. Let's be grumbly enough. Maybe we can manipulate God or Moses into giving us what we want. How many times have we done that? How many times have we prayed a specific prayer and thought, oh, maybe God might not take that right. I should pray a different prayer. I I need to convince God I'm a little more humble than I actually am. So that maybe he'll give me the thing I really want. It's it's a vain attempt, right? The God that can count the hairs on our head and knows our every bit of our soul is not going to be swayed by our feeble attempts at trying to manipulate him. And God obviously sees straight through their plan. And he is generous. Testing God always involves some degree of doubt. Why would we test God if we were fully confident in his ability? Why would we test God if we had looked back on our life and said, God has always provided everything I absolutely needed, and now I'm in this pretty bad circumstance, and I need to test to see whether God is really there or not. Think of how, once again, you would address this with a child. You would sit down and you would say, son, daughter, I've loved you and cared for you since you were born. I'm not just going to drop you off now on the curb someplace and let you starve. And hopefully you would see the lights on your kids light up, or the eyes on your kids light up. My kids are robots. The eyes on your kids light up as they understand the logic 
of how people they're complaining really is. How illogical it really is. And so God does that. And I, I do want to say that I don't believe that all testing is sinful. I think that there are some very godly accounts of testing God in Scripture where, where God is engaged in that testing. And in fact, in some ways, he's, he's uh, recommended, he's honored it. And he's given testimony and changed lives. And so I don't think that all testing is necessarily sinful. But in this particular case, it's, it's pretty clear that Moses himself has put this in the sinful category, in the untrusting category, in the I have severe doubts category. And then they end with this. Is the Lord here with us or not? It took me a while to kind of parse the modern day uh, understanding of this, but actually the commentary I, I was reading had a fantastic example that I think applies to the vast majority of us. It doesn't matter whether you're married or single. Um, this should apply. Uh, imagine you're, uh, you're, you're, most of us live with somebody, right? A roommate or a spouse, and, and they have decided they're going to cook a meal for you. Or maybe you go over to somebody's house, and they're going to cook a meal for you, and you show up, and it's not quite ready yet, so you're going to eat at six, and you're there at six, and you're on time, and you walk and you say, oh man, are we going to eat tonight? What do you think my spouse is going to say when I say that? Did I mean that as a question? <laughs> no, I meant that as a statement. What I'm doing is I'm stating my displeasure. I'm saying, you committed something, and now you're not here. And you should feel the burden of that commitment. The Israelites are poking God in the eye here. They're saying, God, you promised us, but are you here or not? Just poking him right in the eye. And God takes this, the gracious God that he is, and he delivers for them anyway. It's a wonderful grace of our spouses to overlook such a sinful thing as questioning when dinner is done. Right? It's, it's, it's a skill set to develop those sort of patience. God has those patience. So as the Israelites go through this entire thing, uh, what, what's interesting is that Moses goes and he strikes the rock, and the water comes out, right? And they drink, and there's a bunch of elders there. And then the Israelites say this, right? This wasn't a pre-statement. They weren't, this wasn't even a continuation of their manipulation ploy. This, this wasn't trying to get God to give them water. God had already given them water from a rock. And then they ask the question, God, are you still here or not? It seems ridiculous when we address it from that perspective, right? It seems uncanny how somebody could be so naive, so short-sighted, to make that statement. Ready for this? We do it all the time. Don't we? I do it all the time. God, are you there yet? I can look at 32 years worth of history in my life, and I can see time after time after time where God has come into my life and miraculously done a work that I could not attribute to anything but God's good grace. I can look at my, my, my family now, my wife, my kids, my extended family, my employment, um, the fact that I get paid is a wonderful thing, right? And yet it's still easy to think sometimes how you can maybe get paid a little more. You can maybe be appreciated a little more. 
maybe if your spouse just understood you a little bit better. We take the perfectly good gifts that God has given us, the blessings from a God who loves us, and we, we twist them. And then we shove them back in space. And that's the sinful nature. That's our sinful heart. And so as we look at this, I want to make sure that we don't dwell there. Is the Lord here with us tonight? Yes! Yes, He is! Yes, 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 yes. And unfortunately, there's no account here of Moses replying to that. In fact, the way that it's structured, the way that sentence works, is it makes it sound like Moses is actually kind of complicit in that. Right? It doesn't say, and the people said this, and then Moses rebuked them, it, it, which normally it would say that. In Scripture, we have a lot of accounts of that happening. In this particular case, it just says, because the people of Israel argued with Moses and tested the Lord by saying, is the Lord here with us or not? Now, Moses might not have said this himself, but it doesn't explicitly say that he disagreed with it. And by his attitude and his doubt that he had in God that he does express, I don't think we can emphatically say that he wasn't in this camp of doubt. And so, we must remember how ridiculous our current struggles seem at times. When we have a lifetime of God's goodness and grace. We have a lifetime of His salvation. We have an eternity, a future in Him. We have a, a, a grace so good that there is nothing we can do to deserve it. And yet we still question the motives of God. We still question God. Are you there? So not only is God gracious, but God is intentional. Water from a rock. This is pretty. This is a pretty common sight for God, right? Producing water where water doesn't belong. In this particular case, it comes from a rock. Now, I, I read several commentaries that said this really wasn't that amazing. It was just an underground spring, and Moses walked up to it, he hit it with his staff, and clearly some rock just broke off. And water came from it. And I thought, wow, why are you even writing a commentary? <laughs> if you can't simply give God the, the, the benefit of the doubt that a single miracle is possible within the context of hundreds and hundreds of miracles, why are you writing a commentary? The reality is, is that that would, be, uh, that would be reducing this to a far lower standard than what it actually is. The reality is that God went and he changed water from being bitter to sweet. He gave them food from heaven that tastes like honey. He gives them a pillar of fire and a pillar of cloud to follow. He parts the Red Sea. He does 11 signs and wonders. But this was impossible. Right? No, of course not. God is very intentional about the way that he loves us. And he tests us. Because when we test God, we're expressing our doubts. When God tests us, he is expressing his love. And that is a very different motive. When God tests the Israelites over and over and over again, he's trying to make a point. Because he wants to get it through their thick, thick souls that he loves them. And he wants them to know his love. God could have provided that water through a stream or maybe another pond or a lake, but he didn't. He said, Moses, go ahead of your people, bring some leaders with you, 
and hit this rock with a stick, and I'm going to make water come out of it. You don't do something like this unless you're planning to make a point. And you don't do something like this unless you're planning to do it very intentionally. God is very intentional about the way that he loves us. And from God's estimation, which I believe is perfect, he gave the Israelites exactly what they needed for that time. We do not always know the time and place of God's provision. We try and predict it, right? And we do this in the most um, interesting of ways, that if we simply just walk this particular lifestyle, we can somehow predict God's blessing. That if we simply just raise money in this way, we can somehow predict God's blessing. That if we love our kids in this specific way, that we can predict how they're going to turn out when they become adults. We do this, and, and we create models. Now, these models aren't necessarily a bad thing. It's good to learn from previous experience. But if you leave that post of learning from previous experience and get to the point where you feel like you're trying to manipulate God into giving you what you want, you cross the boundary. We do not always know the time and place of God's provision. And there's a pretty clear trend all through Scripture, and especially with the Israelites, that shows that God is the most amazing in context where he is absolutely unassuming. We see this happen, not just in the Old Testament, but with the birth of Jesus himself. That a, 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 a great leader that was supposed to come to this earth and conquer it, did it in such a way that he came as a baby. He was not a politician. He was not a, a war hero or a leader. He was a guy that discipled 12 people. That's what God did through Jesus. Very unassuming. And we, we cannot predict the time and place that when God is going to work. And that's all right. That is okay. But what we are learning through this is that God is intentional. And he's going to reveal himself in the time and place that he desires that will make most sense to impact our lives. God wanted to convince the Israelites. He wanted to drive point home that he loves them, that he cares for them. And so this is the way that he did it for the third time over again. And unfortunately, we see a commonplace here, which is the Israelites still really didn't quite get it. It's easy for us to look back now in hindsight and laugh. Once again, how do we do this in our own lives today? God chooses to help in his timing because he is committed to guiding us to strength. In him, not in ourselves. If it was up to our timing and our place, if we could predict where God made that spring happen, then it would be something that we could control. God takes that control from us because he loves us, because he cares for us. God tests us intentionally to relieve our doubts, to express his love. For him, it's a, it's, a, it's a teaching opportunity. When I was growing up, I have lots of stories from my mother, too. She's, she's a fantastic mother um, and just has very creative methods of parenting. I think I can, for everybody here that knows her, would all agree with me on that. Very creative uh, modes of parenting. And so we did things like running laps around the house when we had too, too much energy and things like that that were fantastic. But one of the things that I remember most significantly growing up is that my mom 
tried very hard to, to never parent by simply just telling. She was always asking us questions, and it was really annoying, constantly. So anytime you had a question, hey, why is it that way? She said, I don't know. What, what do you think? Well, I think this. And she would get an answer out of us. And every time we had some sort of a statement or a question, it would really bother her when my dad would just give us the answer. She just, it just really bothered her that he would do that. We loved him, so we knew to ask him first. Um, if she was listening in, I'd hear her yelling from the other side of the house, Don't tell him! Just ask him why! Because she saw every opportunity as a teaching opportunity. She was constantly testing us. She was constantly testing our motives, our willpower, our knowledge. And that, for her, was a teaching. It was a teaching opportunity. And I do, I, I, I greatly value that experience with my mother. Because I think that that is part, partly how God does it with us. I think instead of just giving us the answer, instead of just giving us what we want, God teaches us. Instead of asking for, for happiness, and God just giving us happiness, He teaches us what is behind happiness. Instead of just giving us enough, instead of just giving us comfort, He teaches us about comfort. Oftentimes, by not being comfortable. God teaches and I think it's important that we recognize that that's one of his methods. Because that way we can recognize when he's teaching us. We can engage with him in our abiding relationship. And we can recognize when we just don't quite understand it that maybe that is God teaching us. We don't always know the time and place that God is very intentional. I didn't actually tell my wife I was going to share this, but I, I'm sure she will approve. She loved it when I do this. It's not about you, actually. Um, but a testimony from my own life. When uh, I moved to Thailand, I was, I was fresh out of college. I was quite young. Um, 22 years old at that point in time. Tara and I were married about a year later. And uh, we had this grand plan, right? That we were going to have like five years of no kids, and travel, do fun things. Right? Well, ten months later, we had a kid. And we went through a lot of ups and downs during that season of being really excited and not excited and kind of disappointed, really frustrated. We, I think we pointed a lot of our own frustrations at each other during that time. And it was a really challenging year. But now, and I can confirm she said this, and there's even, I have witnesses, so I know you said this. She and I would both agree that having a son early in our marriage was actually one of the primary things that, that, that we had to work on that allowed us to understand who God was in a new way and love each other better. It was a key component of us not letting Satan have a foothold in our lives because we had to, in the first year of our marriage, do away with this selfishness of living the life that we want to live and we had to give our lives over to another human. And that was an incredibly humbling experience. And it took a very long time for me to understand why God did that. But now I look back and I look at how incredibly selfish I was. Incredibly prideful I was. And I realized that God gave me a solution in an unassuming way. He taught me about pride. He taught me about humility. He taught me about love by giving me a place to practice. And that was an amazing, that was an amazing season of our lives. 
And I can guarantee you, we did not predict that. <laughs> we didn't predict that was going to happen. And then when it did happen, we didn't predict the effects that it was going to have on us. But God was so good. And then when we tried really hard to control the next season of our life, we said, well, we have one kid, let's have a second one. It was another five years before God gave us a second child. It was literally the week after Tara sold the crib. <laughs> We'd finally given up. She sold the crib, and a week later, she goes, I think I'm pregnant. <laughs> really? Can't you just have me give me a little bit of control, God? Just, a, just an inkling. But no. Because God knows that that's something I struggle with. He knows that me being able to control my life is something I do to keep him distant from me. And so what he does is he gives me circumstances to humble me constantly. He's had me work for my father-in-law for nine years. <laughs> it's a humbling experience. We do enjoy working together, right? We do. But it has been humbling. And in the next season of life, I'll be working with my father. Another humbling experience. And we're going to enjoy working together, too. These are not things I could have ever predicted that God would do. But he has in amazing ways. And every step of the way I can see how he has changed my life. Because he's been intentional in the way that he has infused his love into my life. And for that, I will forever be thankful in ways that I can never communicate. Because it's deep. And I'm sure that many of us have those exact same sort of experiences. Another key component that I want to end on here Moses leaves a signpost. He leaves a record. He says that he named the place Massah Meribah, which essentially means that we tested and we argued with Moses. We tested God and we argued with Moses. He leaves it behind. He named that place. And this is something that I really appreciate that the Israelites do because I think it's actually a wonderful discipline. That when you go through a hard time, name it. Give it a signpost. Don't forget that that time happens. Add it into your culture of your family. Remember to tell your kids of the things that were hard in your past. It's another thing I value greatly that my parents did, is they did not keep us from many of the struggles that they had in 35 plus years of pastoral ministry. We were involved. And we knew when times were difficult. We knew when there were struggles. And, and they named those seasons. We can all remember back to that one time we had absolutely no money for Christmas, but thank goodness my dad got a side of beef from the church as his bonus that year. Who could have predicted that? But it's humbling. And I remember that as a kid because my parents talked to me about that. And that was important. I think we do our kids a great disservice when we protect them from the hardships of life because we, we rob them of the signposts of our experiences. And Moses says this in an awesome way by just naming it. Masal Meribah. Now, this wasn't necessarily a physical signpost. Maybe they didn't put a sign in the ground. I don't know what specifically say. It's just that they named it. One of the things that I like about this is that they make it a signpost of testimony. Now, if you go and you, and you, and you uh, study and engage with the, the Jewish culture, it's got all of these holidays and these traditions involved in it. 
which I think are very, very important because they're all reminders. And as we look through Scripture, we see these reminders. That's what we're reading now. That's what the Corinthians' uh, account of this is. It's somebody recalling back to something that happened and taking value from that thing. And so what I want to encourage you to do is please don't protect your family from the negative experiences that you've had or the positive ones. Make sure that you tell your kids both the ways that God is blessing you as well as the ways that He is challenging and testing you. Because it's only through that to your kid that your kids are actually going to get an understanding of what the Christian life really looks like. If it's all just butterflies and rainbows, they're going to be really, really disappointed. If you withhold all the testimonies and the signposts, they're going to be very disappointed when they get there. At the same time, if all you tell them is the terrible things that have happened to you, it's probably not going to encourage them to explore more. And at the same time, if all you do is just tell them the good things that have happened to you, then they're going to think they're doing something horribly wrong when they realize that the Christian life is actually quite difficult. And it's going to make them question their faith. It's going to make them question their understanding. And so I encourage you to set aside posts. What season are you in now? What is your trigger that leads to that doubt? Address that. Sometimes we can't do it in that time and circumstance, but we can look back on that circumstance and we can remember that time a year or two or three or five or ten years ago and God can give us revelation on that season in life. We can remember what it is and then we can give it as a testimony. Testimonies are incredibly valuable. They're incredibly valuable in the church. They're incredibly valuable in discipleship relationships in your families. Share your testimony with your children, with your spouses, with those that are close to you. They need to know what it's really like. And this is something that I believe for all the faults of the Israelites and all of their lack of doubt, which we should at this point in time be able to identify with, they write it down and they remember it. And that's so valuable. Because how else are we going to pass that knowledge on? How else are we going to pass that experience on? This is modeled for us right here. That's what this is. This isn't just the Israelites. This is what Jesus did. As Jesus came to earth to die for us, he came from a virgin woman, a miraculous birth. He avoided death on many occasions. He grew up an unassuming child, son of a normal person, became a carpenter that studied at the Jewish temple. He changed lives around him. He discipled 12 men, and then he was killed a horrible and ruthless death that was absolutely required for us to be able to receive the salvation that we claim today. That testimony should change your life every time you hear it. If it doesn't, then you've lost its value. You've forgotten how terrible we really were. And it's important that we remember how terrible we really were, as well as how amazing God's blessings are and how he has transformed us. That is how we can pass things on. So as we look back at these three grumbling testimonies. I want you to know that God is generous. He loves us far beyond 
what we can imagine. That God is gracious. Even when we test Him. Even when we poke fun at Him. Even when we try and manipulate Him. That God is gracious. And He does things for us to test us because He loves us. And He wants us to know Him at a deeper level. That's why these testimonies have been written down. They've gone through the canonization process. And that's why we study them now. Is because they're relevant to the Christian life. If you're looking at this passage still and you're thinking, how is this relevant to me? You're still missing it. And God needs to do some humbling. You've been listening to a sermon recorded at Chiang Mai Christian Fellowship in Chiang Mai, Thailand. For more information, please view our website at www.ccfth.org.